All right, I'm a happy guy because my wife just got here. She was uh, up helping her parents um, in Santa Maria and took the train this morning to come to church. About six hours, I think she was. <laughs> uh, so she just arrived on time. I was praying, Lord, please help her make it. Please help her make it. So I'm excited that I opened my eyes and there she is. But uh, great to be with you. It's such a privilege uh, to be able to have this opportunity to study God's word. I, I, I hope that we don't uh, take this lightly. God speaks through uh, what he has spoken, and so we come really ultimately uh, to hear from him. And so I'm just really, really grateful that he allows us to uh, participate in this together. And we are uh, talking a little about leadership, understanding uh, church leadership. And this is like a summer series, I guess. Uh, Last year, I think it was, around this time, we did a little series on the culture of the church, and this year we're doing this series on understanding uh, church leadership. So maybe this will be a a thing, focus on uh, church life in the summer. I don't know. But uh, we're doing this partly because uh, actually a lot of you are away, and and those of you who aren't away have uh, COVID or are are sick. And, And this next section in Luke, we've been walking our way through Luke as a church, and this next section in Luke is really, really significant, and so I don't want to dive into the sermon on the plane here in Luke until more of you are back. But also partly, that's not the only reason, also uh, we're doing this because one of our goals this year and really in the years ahead is to develop leaders. I want to be a better leader, uh, and we want to develop leaders. That's even how we started this uh, series, saying we want to be a leadership training factory. And also, I guess, uh, this is partly just because we happen to be at a part in Luke. Uh, We are in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, where Jesus names the apostles who end up being some of the most significant leaders in the early church. And so it just kind of made sense uh, to take a moment and pause here and think a little bit about leadership in general. Because this is an important subject, uh, leadership. Uh, It's worth thinking about, because leaders are important, and not the leaders themselves, obviously, they're not important, but the idea of leaders or uh, leading or who leads is important almost by definition because leaders take people somewhere or they're not really leaders. Uh, That's what a a leader is. He takes people somewhere, uh, which makes leadership exciting, the potential, because you get to serve by helping people get where they need to get. And yet it also makes it uh, scary, kind of, kind of scary and, and dangerous because you can take them to the wrong place or you can just be a poor leader and they don't go anywhere good. So leadership matters and I, I kind of put that up here at the front because I think we live in a little bit of an anti-leadership age or era where we're almost automatically suspicious of leaders or leadership, and sometimes obviously for good reason, but we can't get away from it. We need leaders, and we will have leaders, and so we need to think about the kind of leaders we have, the kind of leaders we are, because things will be different as a result of leadership, for good or for bad. We will be different, and because if we don't proactively and deliberately think about leadership and what it means to be a biblical leader, we often, almost always, will get it wrong because we are constantly picking up ideas of leadership from the world around us, the culture, which is very different than Jesus's. The world has an idea of leadership and it's influencing us, and that's a problem because its idea of leadership is often very different than Jesus's. I I think, for example, of the disciples in the Gospels, Jesus's followers, and and maybe you know the story or stories, really, because they're often talking about leadership. This is a subject they definitely were, were interested in, and Jesus has to keep coming back to them and saying, this is what you think it means to be a leader. And you know what? You're thinking about leadership just like everyone around you, and you're wrong because this is what it really means to be a leader. And it's almost the exact opposite. And the thing is, they were with Jesus, and they grew up 
in a place that loved the Bible, but they thought about leadership just like unbelievers. And that's not just a problem way back then. That's still a problem. All these years later, we are not immune from that. It's funny, if, you, if you've lived in two different places, uh, you know there are ways that we think about leadership growing up where we grew up that are different than how people think about leadership in other places. This is one of the challenges, actually, of being an American missionary, because you go to a culture and you have, sometimes without even knowing it, ideas of what it looks like to be a leader that are sometimes very different than how people in that culture think about leadership. And sometimes the ideas that you picked up sort of unconsciously are, are a maybe a little positive. Sometimes they're negative. A lot of times they're negative. But it just feels right to us. Like, this is what a leader is. It just seems normal to us. And we don't always even realize it, that we have been influenced. And sometimes the ideas that we have about being a leader that feel so right, that feel so normal, that come from our culture, uh, like the disciples' ideas were coming from their culture, actually aren't the same as Jesus's. He has an idea about what it means to be a leader. He has a different way that he thinks about what it means to be a good leader than the world does, for sure. And so if you'll take your Bible and open to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, I thought we could think about what makes a good leader from the Bible's perspective by looking at the lives of one of the men that God used to turn the world upside down. If you remember, last week we spent our time talking basically about one word in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, and that was the word apostle. And uh, this week, we're going to look at one of those apostles, the life of one of those apostles, to try to figure out what we can learn about what it means to be a leader. And we're looking specifically at Simon Peter. For one thing, because he's put forward in the Gospels as kind of the representative apostle. Uh, the Gospels talk about him the most. There's more said about Simon than any of the other apostles listed here. And that's not surprising, I guess, because he's also the one we find saying the most. Luke pretty much only records the call of Simon to be the disciple, to be a disciple. He, he talks a little bit about Levi, but not nearly as much. So he's kind of an example of what it means to be a disciple back in Luke 5. And as we read through the gospel, we'll see that he's also held up to us as an example of what it meant to be an apostle as well, which is why we always find his name at the front of the list. You see here in verse 14, Jesus, when he called his disciples, he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, and he begins to list those apostles, and Luke, like every other gospel writer, begins in the same place. The other names sometimes get jumbled up in the list, but the first and last name are always the same, and the first is always Simon. In fact, the way that Matthew writes this same list in Matthew 10, verse 2, he actually says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon. And he's not first because he, this is al alphabetical or something. Uh, I think it's a little more than just a way of speaking. If you look at the way the Gospels themselves are written, Simon clearly is out front. It's only in the Gospel of John uh, that you'll find Simon and the beloved disciple kind of side by side. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's definitely out front speaking for the others and also being spoken to as someone who represents them. Obviously, all the apostles are important and exercise leadership in the early church, but Simon seems to be a leader of leaders. And we know that not just because he's listed first among the apostles, but also we get a hint that he is to be a leader of leaders by the fact that Jesus gives Simon this name, Peter. Simon, whom he named Peter. Simon's got four different names in Scripture. His Aramaic name was Simeon. The, the Greek equivalent was Simon. And then there's this nickname that Jesus gave him, which was Peter in the Greek, and the Aramaic for that same word was Cephas, uh, which is the name Paul seemed to like to use for him for, for some reason. And 
While we're familiar with the name uh, Peter now, it wasn't a common name in Jesus' day. It wasn't even a name. It literally meant uh, rock. So instead of Simon Peter, we could literally uh, read Simon Rock, which would be a nice name for Jesus to give you, wouldn't it? Someone call you the rock. Some would have said we should call him Rocky because that's how the name would have sounded to the people around him. And Jesus gave him that name almost like a promise. It was pointing forward to the role he would play. It's not like Jesus just like nicknames like some guys. But when God was choosing to use someone in a significant way in salvation history, he would often give them a new name, like Abram became Abraham, or Jacob became Israel, or Hosea became Joshua, or Simon became Peter, Rock, at least partly because Jesus was choosing to use him as one of the most significant foundational leaders in the early church. In fact, one scholar says, It's impossible to overstate the importance of Peter in the rise of the early church, which is not quite true. I think that's just a scholar actually overstating it because there are millions of people that are part of a church that overstate his leadership. But he definitely was important. After Jesus ascended in Acts, it's Peter who leads the church to replace Judas. It's Peter who preaches the first great sermon at Pentecost. It's Peter who God chose to show there were no unclean foods. It's Peter who takes the gospels, the gospel to the people of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. It is Peter who first led the church to see that God's salvation extended to the Gentiles. You know, there are uh, some people who even outline the book of Acts as first Peter, chapters 1 to 12, and then second Paul chapters 13 to 28, because these are two of the great leaders in the life of the early church. And while Paul wrote more of scripture, Peter is actually mentioned more often in the scripture than Paul. If it were a contest, 181 times for Peter, Paul 177. So it's, it's close, but it's clear Simon had a huge leadership role to play. We look at Simon the apostle and it's like we see in flashing neon lights, leader, rock. And so I want us to look at this first apostle that Jesus names, Simon Peter, and ask, what is it that causes a person to make the kind of impact that Peter did? If he's this great leader, what does an effective spiritual leader look like? And first, we might look at his natural gifting. There are three places I want us to look to consider what made Peter, a great leader. And the first place we might look is natural gifting. That's where John MacArthur starts. He's got this great book, 12 Ordinary Men. It's not where I ordinarily would start because I think we as humans tend to focus too much on externals. But there are some things that we do know about Simon that make him stand out. Even though he was kind of from an out of the way place, actually. Uh, It wasn't like he seemed like he was an important person when Jesus first met him. He came from a town called Bethsaida, which literally meant house of the fishermen, which was this city that had a pretty large Gentile presence. It was on the border of two provinces. So to go from one province to the other, you would have to, if you were a businessman, uh, pay tax. And as a result, there were a lot of administrative government type officials living there, which is why it wasn't just solidly Jewish. And that may be why Simon had an Aramaic name, Simeon, and he had a a Greek name, Simon, that he used as well. He would have uh, been bilingual, which to me as an American is pretty impressive. It always feels like a superpower. And he was also a businessman. And by that, we mean not just some guy standing on the side of the lake with his fishing rod and worm, but he was uh, in the fishing business. He owned a boat. Jesus had to get in his boat, remember, and he had people who worked for him, and he was in partnership with his own brother, and also uh, James and John. Some people think James and John's mother, Salome, was Mary's sister, actually, so that would have made uh, James and John Jesus's cousins, and then Peter married one of James and John's sisters, and they have reasons they think all that. But we do know these men were 
all in partnership together. And so it seems like they had a pretty good business going on. So Simon wasn't poor, poor. He was probably somewhere in the middle class. He was married. He had a house in Capernaum. And there are these archaeologists who think they found his house somehow. It's, it's pretty big. It's more like a large complex of rooms put together where a, a number of families would live together. And so some people think Andrew, Simon, James, John, and their mother, Simon's mother-in-law, all lived together there, which is a lot of folks. <laughs> uh, Personality-wise, he definitely had get up and go, Simon. And these are the things that MacArthur points out in terms of his natural gifting. He says there are three. First, he points out that he takes the initiative over and over in the Gospels after Jesus does this healing at Capernaum and everyone's wondering where he is. Mark tells us that it's Simon who heads up a search team to find him. When the disciples had a question they wanted to ask Jesus, usually in the Gospels, it's Simon they choose to be their spokesman. Sometimes you'll read a story in one Gospel where it says the disciples asked Jesus something. And then you'll read the same story in another gospel, and it says Simon asked Jesus. And the, the reason for that is because it seems like the disciples would be talking together, and then they would want Jesus' opinion. And when that happened, most of the time, Simon took the lead. He was the one who would go and ask Jesus for the rest of them, maybe because he was always asking Jesus questions himself anyway, which is another characteristic of Simon that MacArthur points out. He was inquisitive. When, when Jesus taught in parables, it was Simon who said, explain the parable to us. When Jesus talked about confronting someone who sinned against them, it was Simon who asked, how, ma you know, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sinned against me? And Jesus is like, keep going all the time. When Jesus said salvation was difficult for the rich person, it was Simon who asked, wait, wait a second, we left everything to follow you. What, what are we going to have? He, he became kind of the go-to guy among the disciples. There were times when people outside the little group wanted to ask Jesus a question, but they wanted to ask it in sort of a tricky way. And so they would go to the disciples first, and you know who they would single out to ask? Probably because they saw him as a leader. It was Simon. You don't want to read too much in between the lines, but Simon was clearly someone people noticed. Not always because he had every answer, but because he took initiative. He had a lot of questions. He was inquisitive, and he got involved. I think that's the third thing that MacArthur points out. He got involved in trying to fix problems that he saw occurring, which is actually not very typical because obviously it's easier to be a critic than it is to be a leader, and it's also safer. One of the nice things about being a critic is that you don't put yourself out there. <laughs> You just say what people are doing wrong, but you're kind of safe because you're not doing anything. You're not involved. And Simon wasn't someone like that who just watched and critiqued. He, he might have messed up. And he might not have done great, but he tried. And so if we're asking what made Simon a good leader, there, there might be some things in the way that God designed Simon that gave him some of the raw material. At least uh, John MacArthur thinks so. He, he says, Long before Simon was ever born, back in the councils of eternity, God determined the whole redemptive plan was going to come to pass, that the Lord would come to earth and be incarnate, that he would have these apostles. Their names were well known to God. They were written down, and Peter was planned into the program. And so whatever genetics had to be done to get Peter the raw material, it was there. Peter had all that raw leadership material. He wanted to learn. He took initiative. He didn't just sit back. He saw a problem. He put himself in there. He tried to help and make it better. And yet, while Simon may have had some of the, the natural gifts that made him more suited for leadership, those natural gifts cannot explain why he made the impact he did. Because the fact is, for every place in the Gospels where you look at Simon and say, ah, he had some gifts, you find two or three more stories where you say, what is going on with this guy? The way the gospel writers present Simon, I absolutely can't think that there's any way that they want you to go away thinking that you can explain Simon as a spiritual leader by stopping with Simon. You have to, you have to go deeper. If you want to understand spiritual leadership, what makes a man a good leader? You have to go deeper than natural gifting. 
This is actually the problem that Israel had for so long, right? Pretty much from the first time they chose a king. They were thinking King Saul was, was going to be a great leader, right? And it's like, no. Natural gifting is one thing. It's good. But there's something even more important if we're going to understand spiritual leadership than just Peter's personal background. We need to talk, too, about his spiritual commitments, or maybe we should, say, uh, we should just say spiritual commitment, because really Simon had one main spiritual commitment, and that was Jesus. That's one of the most striking things about him. Simon didn't always know what he was saying about Jesus, and he didn't always know what he was doing for Jesus, but there's no question Simon loved Jesus. And one way we see his commitment to Jesus show up is way back at the beginning of his Christian life, almost at the start. Simon was willing to submit himself to Christ, even when it cost. Before Simon was a leader, he was a follower, which is striking because, you know, Simon doesn't seem like an easy person to tell what to do. He probably was a pretty strong man physically, being a fisherman. This wasn't a sit-at-your-desk kind of job. But besides being strong physically, he was definitely just a strong man generally. He was the kind of person, when he thought someone was wrong, he would say so. There was even a moment when he took Jesus aside, and we heard it, and rebuked him, which tells you something about a person if he's willing to rebuke someone who raised somebody else from the dead. He didn't always think, he just did. He's the one who grabbed his sword when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and cut off the high priest's ear. And it probably was only the ear because he missed. I think he was swinging for the head. He was a fisherman, not a soldier. So it's not like Simon didn't have opinions, and, and, and he was not, he was definitely not just a passive kind of person. He just kind of went for it naturally and said what he wanted to say and did what he wanted to do. And yet what's so beautiful is that when Jesus comes to him in Luke 5, if you just turn a chapter back and tells him to let down his nets, you know what he does? Jesus gets into his boat, Luke 5, 1 to 11, and tells Simon to let down his notes and uh, let down his nets. And, and Simon argues a bit. But then he does it. And a couple verses later, when Jesus calls him to be his disciple, Simon doesn't hesitate. He just leaves everything. Luke chapter 5, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And everything means what? (laughs) Everything. Everything's a business. It's a family business. And actually, at that point, a boatload of money. Like literally, with all the fish in the boat at that point, you remember Jesus did that miracle and they had boats filled with fish and fish were money. So leaving everything for Simon at that moment is leaving a boatload of money. And obviously fishermen wouldn't normally do that, but Luke tells us Simon did. And he did because Jesus told him to. And he was 100% committed to the authority of Jesus Christ over his life, even if it cost him which not everyone did, even in Jesus' day. You know, there were a lot of people in Jesus' day who wanted to have a relationship with Jesus but weren't willing to submit to his authority over their life. That was true back then, and that's true even now as well. There are people who are religious and yet live as if Jesus' word is a take-it-or-leave-it matter. But look, real spiritual leadership begins. We're just Honestly, everyday discipleship begins when we recognize that Jesus has absolute authority over us, even if it costs. If we say we're Christians and we are acting like we're the ones in charge of our life, we'll never be effective spiritual leaders. And you know what? We won't even be good disciples, actually, because a disciple and certainly a spiritual leader, realizes his life does not belong to him. It belongs to Jesus. And so the decision he makes, they're not his decisions. He is a servant of Jesus Christ, which means he is owned. And so he has to make decisions that reflect the authority of Christ. So it's not just what do I want to do. It's what does Christ want me to do. Like with Simon here, when Jesus said, follow me, Simon said, here I come. 
which meant goodbye, middle-class life, hello, cross. And, you know, this wasn't a one-time thing for him either. If you keep reading, his commitment to Christ's authority only increased. After Jesus rose from the dead and sent him out to preach, he ended up standing before religious leaders who crucified Jesus, the very same ones, and they were threatening his life. And you know what he says? When they tell him he needs to stop preaching, he says, we must obey God rather than men. And there are other examples, like just the way he ended up dying. He ended up dying by being crucified. Clearly, Simon had learned to submit, which I'm saying is spiritual leadership 101, really. Effective spiritual leadership begins with an absolute, unswerving commitment to following Jesus no matter what. As long as we're living our lives like we're the ones in charge, we will never be true spiritual leaders. We'll never make a lasting impact because you can't lead others until you learn to follow Jesus. And following Jesus wholeheartedly means submitting to the authority of his word over your life completely. Jesus has to hold a place in your life that no one else does. Does he? Is there any area in your life where you would say no to Jesus? Because sometimes we have these agendas. And uh, deep down, we are not willing to give up our agenda to follow Jesus. If there's one thing I could wish for us as Christians, (laughs) for myself, but for us as Christians in general, it's just that we'd be more honest. Because sometimes you've gone to church for so long that you know the right things to say, but you're not telling the truth. And so you're rewriting the story and making it sound all fancy and all nice when the real story is not that. And you can change if you're honest, but if you're not honestly telling the story, it's going to be very difficult for you to change. And one story that we sometimes tell is that we really are following Jesus when the reality is we're trying to get Jesus to follow our agenda instead which I actually think might have been why Jesus called the disciples the way he did, uh, because we don't do this anymore, obviously, the same way, Um, because he's Jesus. But so often when Jesus called the disciples, he was like, okay, if you want to follow me, um, here's what you're going to need to do. You've got to leave it all behind. And you think, wow, like, can you imagine we have these little transformation groups here at uh, church? Can you imagine doing that as one of the requirements for being in your transformation group? You're like, okay, um, you want to be part of my transformation group? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then we're going to meet next Tuesday. And we, we don't do that because we're not Jesus, of course. But I wonder if the reason Jesus did that was because he didn't have a lot of time to mess around, and he wanted to quickly get to the core of the issue. Are you going to be willing to do whatever I say? Let's not just play games. Like, are you willing to do whatever I say? Or are you going to pretend to follow me while you're not actually really willing to submit. And so this call to leave everything behind was such a great, obvious test. Are we using Jesus, or are we willing to let Jesus use us? Because honestly, I don't think it's as important how many gifts you have if you're going to be a leader, or what kind of background you have, or where you went to school, or how smart you might be. If you haven't learned to submit completely to the authority of Jesus, those abilities aren't going to help much. But on the other hand, if you don't have many gifts, but you are committed to lining yourself up under the authority of Jesus, no matter what, your life is going to bear spiritual fruit, like Simon. Simon submitted to Jesus. I was thinking of George Mueller. He's one of my my personal heroes. I grew up reading biographies, and there was a quote this morning that I just remembered uh, that was... uh, sort of life-changing for me, but George Mueller talks about his own relationship with with Christ and what made him so affected. If you don't know George Mueller, uh, read a biography. Uh, What a a impactful life, but he he tries to explain what it was and uh, that made him, that enabled him to have the impact he had, and he, he, he puts it like this. There was a day when I died. I died to self, my opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren or friends. 
And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Is there a day that you died? If you're a Christian, there is. <laughs> but have you forgotten it? Spiritual leaders remember that. I died. Christ is my life. Before we, before we lead, we really have to be willing to follow. That, that's first, like Simon. Second, Simon submitted to Jesus. Why? Because he had been humbled by Jesus. In other words, the reason Simon was willing to do whatever Jesus said was because he knew who Jesus was. And this is Luke 5 again, because uh, Luke 5, and we looked at this passage a number of months ago now, but Luke 5, verse 11, with Simon submitting to Jesus and leaving everything for Jesus, this is going to be deep Bible study here, but it comes after Luke 5, verse 8. <laughs> so Luke 5, 11 comes after Luke 5, verse 8, with Simon bowing before Jesus. You remember Simon, how he was out there trying to catch fish all night and he couldn't, and then Jesus comes and he speaks and fish start leaping into his boat and he's having to call the others back from shore, please come help. And Simon realized that moment was about more than just fish leaping into his boat and was actually about who Jesus was. And so even though he couldn't maybe have explained everything, the significance of Jesus comes crashing down on him, and he's coming to really understand that this man is God, and he's standing there in his boat actually caring about him. And so Simon couldn't help but fall on his knees and cry out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. It's like, now I know who you are, and so I, now I know who I am, which is why ultimately I don't think it was hard for Simon when Jesus said, come follow me and leave everything. You know, we, we think it sounds so hard, even still. Sometimes we're like, it's so hard to obey Jesus. And we think the reason it's hard is because what he's asking us to do is so difficult, but that's not the reason, really, that we, that we need to speak truth to ourselves. The reason is not because it's so difficult. Because obviously, if you think about Simon, if it were just a carpenter in the boat asking him to leave all those fish and follow him, yeah, that would have been hard for Simon. We agree. But it wasn't just a carpenter. It was the infinite, almighty, omnipresent, everlasting God standing there in his boat. And Simon knew that. He knew who Jesus was. And so he knew who he was. I am a sinful man. And you are Yahweh, Lord. And why submission is hard for a lot of us is that we forget that. We forget who Jesus is, and we forget who we are. We act as if he were just someone like us. Either we bring him down or we bring ourselves up, which can be a little hard to spot maybe because we have some knowledge about Jesus. So we can say it. No, I know Jesus is Yahweh. I know he's Lord. I know he's Lord. But if deep down it isn't gripping our hearts, while we might say a lot of the right things, in real life, we're not humbled before Jesus. And so at that point, at least, it's really easy for it not to be about Jesus, but about us, which is devastating spiritually. And it seems, seems strange, I know, but that's actually kind of a really easy trap for leaders to almost unconsciously switch places with Jesus, to live life like you're Jesus, the one who gets to tell Jesus what to do. And one reason I think it's such an easy trap is because seeing Jesus for who he is and seeing yourself for who you are usually takes time. It takes spending time with Jesus. And not just once, but like over and over. And life is busy, and you have all kinds of things to do as a leader. And in our culture, we think of leadership so much as doing, because that's how it works in the world. A leader does things. And there is a lot to do, and there is not much time. And the stuff you have to do is important, I'm sure. But you know, one of the differences between worldly leadership and spiritual leadership is that the whole goal of spiritual leadership is to help people know Jesus, to magnify Jesus, to make Jesus look great. And if you're not spending time with Jesus, it's really easy for you to start thinking and acting like you are Jesus and to take this role, which is supposed to be all about Jesus, and make it about you instead. And that can happen so quick. 
because that's like our natural bent. It's not our born again bent, but it is our natural bent. It's what we were doing from babyhood, making it about us, acting like we are God. And so a lot of our habits go in that direction and sinful desires. It's kind of like the Christian life, if you think about it. it it's kind of like, imagine you're part of a play. And so God gives you this script with your part to play. And your part is a very minor part. You are an extra. You are important to God, but not because you are important. Your part is to point people to Jesus, the main character. And one big way you do that is by submitting to Jesus and obeying Jesus, doing what he says. But you know what our problem is? We get this script from God, and we're constantly rewriting it, especially when we don't like our little part in that moment. Because we're like, I think I really should be the hero here. And so we get out our little red pen, and we're constantly like rewriting the script so that we can do what we want to do, and we're the center, and we're the ones telling Jesus what to do. And that is just like death. That's death to a spiritual leader. Because it's going to take us and absolutely everyone that we're leading in the wrong direction. It's not how the play is supposed to go. This play is about Jesus. And yet, of course, the amazing thing about God is that he can take that as we're trying to take over the scene. We're like the extra on the scene trying to like jump behind Tom Cruise or like take over like whatever plane he flew in that movie. We're like hanging on to the nose of the plane. Um, God can take us trying to ruin the scene and make it all about us and somehow make it all work and bring Jesus glory. It doesn't mess up the play for him, but you know it does mess it up for us and it has an impact on the people around us. And the only way we don't do that really is we need to be humbled before Jesus. And to be humbled before Jesus, we need to see Jesus for who he is, that he really is the center of the story. And that he really does deserve the glory. And one big key to being a spiritual leader is enjoying and continually enjoying a relationship with Jesus where you are seeing him for who he is and yourself for who you are. John Newton once put it like this. He says, the best advice I can send or the best wish I can form for you is that you may have an abiding and experimental sense of those words of the apostle, which are now upon my mind, looking unto Jesus. The duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all summarized in that one sentence. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. You must see the glory of Jesus. You must behold Jesus. And one way to tell that you're really seeing Jesus for who he is and yourself for who you are, and I'm coming back to it now, is if you're willing to submit when Jesus calls you to do something hard. This is so important because that's what you do when you know that the person who's calling you to obey is in control of the whole world. That's what you do when you are being asked to do something by someone who knows all things. That's what you do with someone you know is always right. You submit. It's not like this is complicated. But look, this is where it starts feeling complicated. You stop seeing Jesus for who he is. You stop seeing yourself for who you are. And then you start being a little deluded, honestly. Partly because from like, Again, childhood, the world in which you live is like, you're awesome, you're so amazing, you're incredible, and you're like, maybe I am. <laughs> and when you think that, it is very easy to begin arguing with Jesus instead of obeying Jesus. And one way I know that's a real temptation is because there were times that even happened to Peter. I mean, this was a great moment for him, Luke chapter 5, in the boat with Jesus, but it was really hard for him to hang on to, just like it is for, for all of us. And so even after this moment of like absolute clarity, Simon still sometimes forgot what was real, which became one of his core problems, actually, as he followed Jesus. This was a lesson, Jesus, who's so patient, 
had to keep coming back to with Simon and teach him over and over again because it's so important. It's essential. To lead others, you have to follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus, you need to be humbled before Jesus. Spiritual leaders have submitted to Christ because they've been humbled before Christ. And that means not that they go around saying bad stuff about themselves all the time, as much as it means that they know they are not Jesus. And so they know this is not about them anymore. A true spiritual leader knows this is not about them. And so you know what? They are not as interested in themselves that much anymore. Because their lives and their energies are consumed with someone better. They have been gripped and are being gripped by the glory of Christ. Which again is one of the tricky things about spiritual leadership and why I keep emphasizing it because we come out of the womb wanting to be king of the world. Like, where's my throne little, and my uh, crown? And that means we come out wanting the glory that belongs to Jesus. And we're really tricky. <laughs> and sometimes we, we figure out that we can use Jesus and religious activity to get what we want instead of what he wants. Which is hard for us sometimes to be able to identify, definitely in others, but also even in ourselves, because we're sinners, you know? We're deep. We're confusing. But spiritual leaders like Simon have, have turned from that at, at some point. And they are fighting that. They have submitted to Christ. They have been humbled by Christ. And third, they trust Christ. Simon trusted in Christ. He depended on Christ, which is one of the lessons as we read the Gospels that we see Simon learning. And one place we get a glimpse of Simon learning what it meant to depend on Jesus is back in Matthew chapter 14, which describes the next step in Simon's life after that initial call. And maybe you remember this story as well, but it's one of my favorites. If you turn there, it's late at night, Matthew 14, verse 22. And the disciples get on a boat again by themselves. Matthew tells us it was like the fourth watch of the night, which means it was somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. And the apostles had at this point been up all night battling against a storm. Mark tells us they were making headway painfully. Apparently, uh, Matthew 14 comes well after uh, Jesus calls them as apostles. They've been following Jesus for about two years now. And they had seen some like amazing things. Like right before this, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. But they had also seen some things that were confusing, like John the Baptist being beheaded. And the reason they were on the boat was uh, because Jesus had made them get on and go before him to the other side of the sea <coughs> while he dismissed the crowds. And he went himself up to a mountain to pray. And he had been on that mountain praying for a long time because Matthew tells us in verse 24, by the time the boat was a long way from land, it was being beaten by the waves, and the disciples, even though most of them were fishermen, were scared, or at least they were, they were jumpy, because Matthew tells us uh, that in the middle of the night, in the middle of that raging storm, when they saw someone walking on the water to them, they were terrified, and in the fourth watch of the night, this is verse 25, he, he came to them walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear which was kind of a weird thing to say because what would a ghost be doing walking toward them on the water? But they were freaked out, which is why Jesus answers them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, which you could literally translate, take heart, I am, which is awesome. As the waves pound up against their boat, take heart because I am, it is I, I am, I am God. In other words, as you're looking at me, you're looking at the Lord of all creation. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at me and have courage. And you know what? In that moment, Peter does. Out of all the disciples, he clearly believes. He literally says, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It's like I, I see the storm, but mostly right now I see you, and I believe you. I believe you are God, and as God, I believe you're for me, which is why the only thing I want to do right now is be out of this boat and by your side. Jesus, command me to come to you. So Peter's not like wanting to jump into the water just because he likes danger. 
He's wanting to jump into the water because he wanted to be near Jesus, and he wanted to be near Jesus because he knew that's where safety was. He loved Jesus, and he trusted Jesus, and he just wanted to be near Jesus. If you're a fisherman, the last thing you do in the middle of a storm is get out of the boat. That makes no sense. But Simon knew the boat wasn't nearly as safe a place to be as next to Jesus. That's where safety was, with Jesus in the middle of the storm. And so he absolutely had to get to him, even if it meant doing the impossible and walking on water which is the kind of faith we want in our spiritual leaders, at least the beginnings of it. It is trusting the goodness and supremacy of Christ enough to bank your life on it, which is key to living a life that makes an impact for the cause of Christ. Do I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is when the storms are raging? Do I believe he's as powerful as the Bible says he is when the waves are pounding my boat? Do I believe he is as good as he says he is? Do I believe that enough to get out of the boat? Because Simon obviously knew that people didn't normally walk on water. And he could see the waves crashing out of the, against the boat. But the waves and the storms didn't matter as much to him as Jesus. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. He believed Jesus. So when Jesus said jump, he jumped, which is what spiritual leaders do at the end of the day. They put their confidence in Jesus' promise. They trust what Jesus says in his word, enough to obey, even when their circumstances are difficult. They commit themselves to Jesus' protective care, even when what's happening in their life may make it seem like Jesus doesn't care which you can see was going to be difficult for the disciples and for Peter because they were following Jesus partly because they were hoping that Jesus was going to be made king. And yet Jesus is going to the cross. And I think that's probably why he sends them out into the storm. He wants to get them ready for what's coming by showing them that in the middle of the storm, he's in complete control and that even though things aren't going the way they thought it would, they don't need to fear as long as they keep their eyes on him. Because it was going to be confusing as they see the one they thought was king nailed to a cross. It's going to feel a little like it did that night with Jesus sending them into the storm all alone. But Jesus wanted them to know there's no storm that could keep Jesus from getting to them. I mean, Jesus didn't even have a boat. And so the disciples could have thought, there's no way. Jesus is up on that mountain, and we're here in the middle of the sea. We're cut off from Jesus. All there is is this storm and us. But they weren't cut off from Jesus. The waves couldn't keep Jesus from getting to them, because he's not just another carpenter from Nazareth. He is God. Take heart, he says. I am, which means I can take care of you even when it seems like there is no way I can take care of you. And so you can make your little list of all the reasons why it's so impossible for me to help you and for me to keep my promise. You can say, we're in the middle of the sea. Jesus is on the shore. We have a boat. He doesn't have a boat. The waves are so high. He can't find us. It's night. It's dark. And you know, it's like Jesus says, I throw that list out because if I want, I can just get on the water and walk to where you are. You have to understand something about me. No matter what your circumstances might be saying to you, I am God. Take heart and bank your life on me. And Peter totally did. He got it. He understood what was going on, and he jumped out of the boat, and he started walking towards Jesus, which is part of what made him such a great leader. But actually, part of what I love about this story is that even Peter, as he's walking on the water, it wasn't easy because the storm was was raging, and so he takes his eyes off Jesus, and at that moment, what happens? He starts sinking, which, of course, is the point. We can't let our circumstances tempt us to take off our eyes off Jesus, because that's when we start to sink. It's not hard to believe Jesus is for you when you're sitting there in the boat and everything's going smoothly. It's more difficult when he says, come, and you get out of the boat and you see that the wind and the waves are still swirling around you. Will you keep your eyes on him then? Which is where Peter faltered here and honestly Later as well, it's very difficult for Peter to learn to keep his eyes on Jesus and trust that Jesus could take care of him when his circumstances seemed out of control. Like when Jesus was being taken to be crucified, that must have been a moment that felt like being out there in the boat, in the the water, in the middle of the storm. And even though Simon had 
jumped out of the boat, and even though he had left everything to follow Jesus, he allowed those circumstances to, to cause him to, to tempt him to take his eyes off Jesus, and he ended up betraying Jesus, sinking really, just like here, which in a strange way is kind of encouraging in terms of spiritual leadership, because here we're looking at one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world, Simon. This man's a picture of spiritual leadership. He's got like leader pasted all over him. And yet we see with Simon, at the end of the day, it wasn't about him. It wasn't even about the strength of his faith, really. It was about the faithfulness of Jesus. When you see someone walking on the water, you know it's not them. It's Jesus. It's not Peter's strength that was enabling him to stand. It's Jesus's. And everything for Peter depends on, on Jesus and for, for us as well. The key to being a great leader is staying as close as you can to him and keeping your eyes on him no matter what, which isn't always easy, especially in the middle of the, the storm. Even Simon failed to keep his eyes on Jesus here and later. But the good news is that Jesus never took his eyes off Simon. And the, the moment Simon cried out for help, Jesus rescued him. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of Simon, saying to him, this totally makes sense, what you did. Is that what Jesus said? That's bad exposition, right? That's not what he said, even close. He said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? which maybe seems like a crazy question to most of us, like, I wonder why I doubted Jesus. Like, I'm in the middle of the storm, uh, walking on water. Why did I doubt? What reason do I have not to doubt? And Jesus' answer, of course, is me. <laughs> you, you have me. And me versus the storm isn't even a competition, which is, why re which is the reason why spiritual leaders move forward, why they keep pressing on. It's not self-confidence. It's not because they believe in themselves. It's not because they know they can do it. It's not because they're really unusually gifted. It's because they have learned and they are learning that Christ is enough. Hudson Taylor, he tells his story like this. He says, in great spiritual agony, he was a missionary to, to China, Hudson Taylor, and, and, he says, I was in great spiritual agony. I felt like I was alone. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for this service. I told him that all the responsibility as to the issues and consequences must rest with him. As his servant, my part was to obey and to follow him, while his was to direct care and guide me and those who might labor with me. At once, peace flowed into my burdened heart. If God should place me in great perplexity, must he not give me great guidance? Or if God should put me in positions of great difficulty, must he not give me much grace? Or in circumstances of great pressure and trial, much strength? His resources are mine, for he is mine, and is with me and dwells in me. I am no longer anxious about anything as I realize this. He, I know, is able to carry out his will, and his will is mine. It makes no matter where he places me or how. That is rather for him to consider than for me. In the easiest position, he must give me his grace. And in the most difficult circumstances, his grace is sufficient. No matter how intricate my path, how difficult my service, how sad my bereavement, how far away my loved ones, how helpless I am, how deep are my soul yearnings, Jesus can more than meet them all. Which is maybe where we need to end if we're going to understand what made Peter, a great leader. It's, it's, it's probably where we should end and, and begin because there are more qualities that we should talk about. There's one more I'm leaving out, actually, that I think is really important, but we only have so much time. And I don't want us to miss this part because it's so essential if you're going to talk about spiritual leadership. What makes a good leader? You can start with natural gifts, of course. You can talk about spiritual commitment. You need to. But there's something even more fundamental if you're going to understand what makes a great leader a great leader, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And I just think Simon Peter, if he were here, like doing a TED Talk or something on leadership, he would not really want us to miss. He would really not want us to miss this. And though we don't really have time now, it's actually the most important because Simon didn't just naturally become this kind of leader. He had some gifts, but those gifts don't explain him. 
And even those spiritual commitments, submitting to Christ, humbling himself before Christ, trusting Christ, were areas he failed in time and time again. Almost every time in the Gospels you find Simon doing something well, the next thing you see is him doing something really stupid. He jumps out of the boat, and then he starts to drown. He confesses Jesus as Messiah, but then he rebukes Jesus for the way Jesus said he was going to carry out his mission. He, he preaches the gospel. He takes the gospel to the Gentiles, but then he becomes so afraid of what people think, he ends up misrepresenting the gospel, and Paul has to rebuke him. So, you know, that's all there for a reason. And I think the reason is because God wants us to see, before we, we think about Simon making such an impact, God wants to make clear, to explain Simon's leadership, you can't just talk about Simon's commitment to Jesus. You have to remember Jesus' commitment to Simon. It's Jesus who told Simon he was going to be a rock. And it's Jesus who told him he was going to make him a fisher of men. And later in the Gospel of Luke, there's this big moment where, where Simon, Jesus tells Simon that he's in danger. And Simon's like, Jesus, danger? I'm fine. I've got this. I, I can do this, Jesus. And Jesus is like, um, no, <laughs> you're going to betray me. And uh, Simon's like, betray you? It's me, the rock. Rocky, there's no way. And you know what Jesus says? He doesn't flinch because he knows Simon. He knows what's going to happen. But he says, Simon, I'm praying for you. And God's going to hear my prayers. And when he does, I want you to go back and strengthen your brothers. And so at the end of the day, it's not Simon. It's Jesus who made Simon into the kind of leader we need him to be. And that's big for us, because we might look at Simon and say, you know, we're, we're not like him. We're not the same as Simon. But the thing is, we serve the same Jesus. He's still praying for his people. And the Jesus who strengthened Simon to become this kind of man, a humble, submissive, trusting leader, who banked his life on Jesus and eternity, is the Jesus who can strengthen us to do the same. And so if you think leadership is about you, what you can do, you need to go back to the beginning. Because it's so not. It's so not about you. Maybe worldly leadership, not Christian leadership, not leadership in the church. It's about Jesus and what God's doing through him. And this is why I have confidence as we talk about leaders, because God's got a big plan, an eternal plan, where he's rescuing sinners and glorifying himself and reversing the curse and establishing a kingdom where his will is going to be done perfectly forever. That's like, amen. And we are just a small part of that, but we are part of that because his focus right now is on the church. He has given the church this message about what he's done through Jesus and about how people can be forgiven and about how they can be changed and about what's going to happen in the future. And it is the single most important message on the entire planet. And he's entrusted us to be the ones who take that message out. And he's called us to be a place where people can come and get a glimpse of what it looks like to live with Jesus as king. And so we look ordinary, we are ordinary, but we've got this huge task. How are we going to do it? We need leaders. We need the right kind of leaders. But we're not the right kind of leaders. We're sinners. We're going to go the wrong direction if Jesus just leaves us to ourselves. But he's not going to leave us to ourselves. He's made a commitment. And he's not just a person we read about in the past. He's present. And he's at work in this place, in the lives of these believers here, us, through the Holy Spirit. And one way he is working is by giving leaders to the church and strengthening them and sanctifying them to become the kind of leaders he wants them to be. Not leaders who are amazing at everything. Not leaders who can like quote pi, you know, like know all the numbers for pi all the way to like whatever it goes. But submissive leaders. Humble leaders. Independent leaders. Let's pray that God makes us leaders and gives us leaders like that. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for Simon. Thank you that you chose Simon. 
and you, you made him a great leader, and you showed us that it's not about Simon. It's about you, Jesus. Thank you that you're so committed to your church. If we just look at us, ourselves, we're like, no way, this is, we're going to mess this up. But we don't want to just look at ourselves by ourselves because we're not by ourselves. You're with us. You, you, you've chosen us. You're committed to us. And so, Lord Jesus, we look to you. You are good. You are so good. And we ask that you'll continue to raise up leaders, the kind of leaders that you want for this church and for your church around the world. But we're here. So for this church, Lord, raise up leaders who will help us be the kind of church you want us to be. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.